Good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. Um, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna go ahead and call this vacation week. Because um, either people are on vacation or they're going on vacation or somebody's having fun this week. I don't know. Maybe it'll be us this morning. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. All right. We are um, coming into the to the station on our uh, journey through the minor prophets. We are in uh, today the book of Zechariah. We're in the second half. This is part B. This is one of those longer minor prophets that takes two weeks to digest, not just one. So we're doing that uh, together, and, and we're doing it in the midst of a series that we're calling Good News from Overlooked Places, uh, because these, these guys tend to get a little bit overlooked. Now, if you, if you remember last week when we talked about Zechariah, we said that um, Zechariah is full of these visions full of, uh, of, of strange <laughs> pictures of what God is like and what God is doing. And they're all connected back to uh, the temple, which was not yet rebuilt, but the people wanted it to, re- to, to be rebuilt. And God was challenging them, initiating conversation with them to say, why is it that you want this temple back? Do you want it because it, 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 does, it does something for you and your status, or do you want my presence at work in your midst, right? And what we said uh, through the first half of Zechariah is that God isn't, God isn't prompting this question to be stingy. He's not trying to withhold his presence, but he's trying to give it rightly to his people. In fact, he'll, he'll give himself to us in as much measure as we can bear, but he wants us to bear his authority in the ways that are congruent with who he is in his character. Does that make sense? So, so today we're going to look at what that character is when it comes to God's authority. What does it mean that God has power and authority? And what does his authority look like? And then how does God wield power? And what does that mean for us if he shares his authority with us, his people? Okay? How do we live out that authority? So um, we're mostly going to be in Zechariah 9. I'm going to sprinkle a couple verses in from the other chapters and this is what Zechariah 9 says, starting in verse 10. And you'll, you'll recognize these words almost immediately, most likely. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Verse 16 says, The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Chapter 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, 
and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east to the Dead Sea, and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. So I want to I explore two aspects of God's authority today. One is, how does Jesus embody and express the authority of God? Because if Jesus is the exact representation of what God is like, then uh, the way that Jesus expresses and embodies God's authority is the way God's authority works. Jesus isn't a, a second best um, expression of God's authority. He is the exact representation that we need to look at. And then secondly, how do we respond to that authority? How does it shape our lives? I want you to imagine this for yourself just as we go through this because it's helpful to have uh, a narrow area of life maybe in mind so that you can begin to stir an imagination for how to apply these things. What sphere of life have you been entrusted with influence and authority? What sphere of life, what area have you been given authority? For me, you know, I realize that not all of us are parents, but I am, so I'm speaking out of where I have authority as a dad. And I, and I have authority as a dad, and one of the th ways that this text challenges me is the way that I think about and express my fatherly authority. So we're in the middle of summer, right? We're, we're in August now, and I'm ready for school to begin again. I don't know if you are so ready for it. I was talking to Caleb about that earlier, who's now sitting here, and he gets to hear about this. But um, one of the reasons why I'm ready for school to begin is because the summer is like the, t the time when my kids' screen time just becomes unhinged and, like, out of control. It's like a train wreck, and, I like, we can't, I, I have no idea, like, how to stop it, you know? It just happens to us, and it keep, seems to keep happening and, and keep happening. And, um, and this week, which is like many weeks, it's not any different, but it was a particular week where we're constantly telling them, please put this away, please put this away, please put this away. And so, as so often happens, like they just don't listen. I don't know, like they just completely ignore us and they don't hear what, what we're, like the words that are even coming out of our mouths, right? Something happens to me as a dad when this goes on. There is an internal reaction in my heart when this, this goes on. I immediately feel disrespected, and my impulse when I feel disrespected is to power up. You know what I mean by that? Like, get my power on. So, like, raise my voice, I make some threats, I get big and imposing, and I realize I'm not a big guy, but to a 10-year-old, I'm huge, okay? <laughs> so I power up. Um, why? Because I, I want them to do what I want them to do. I'm thoroughly convinced that the authority that Jesus reveals is not the kind of authority that lives in my body. That... that the authority that he displays and invites us to is not an authority to control and oppress those with less power than us. 
but I'm struck by how quickly that kind of authority just emanates from me when I don't get my way, when I'm not listened to or respected. Can you relate to this? Like I said, not everyone is a parent, but we all have domains of responsibility. What kind of authority comes out of you, especially when you don't get your way? What emanates from you? Friends, it shouldn't take um, a lot of convincing to tell you that our world um, has only one imagination for the way that leadership and authority works, and that is through means of command and control. And there's a few different ways that this gets worked out, and I'm going to use two labels. One is demagogues, and one is despots. And our, our world is full of demigods and despots. Um, so what, is a, what, what are these terms? Well, a, a demagogue is someone who gains your allegiance by making you uh, either feel shame or guilt because of who you're not, or fear because uh, of someone else. So um, demagogues love to have scapegoats because they can consolidate their power by making you feel afraid and angry at somebody else. Demagogues say things like, you don't want to become like so-and-so, do you? Right? They use scapegoats and fear tactics to get you to submit. They marginalize one group to control another group. They play one brother against another to gain obedience out of the one. See how this works out in parenting. And this, it's all over the place. It's everywhere. It's from heads of state to cable news. It's full of demagoguery. It runs the world, friends. Or you have despots, and despots um, are people who power up. They, uh, they dictate and they expect people to fall in line, and when they don't, they either get eliminated or oppressed. They operate by an or-else authority. You do this or else. Some kind of punishment, some kind of consequence, some kind of reaction. And that's the kind of world that we live in, right? That's the kind of authority that runs the world. And so we think immediately this must be the way that God wields authority too. But today we proclaim good news that God is not a demagogue or a despot. He doesn't use authority to command or control people. Jesus is our humble king. He uses his authority to save and empower those without power. His authority is freedom. His kingdom is peace. Church, a day is coming when the whole earth will flow with his kind of humble authority. Where would you like a deposit of that authority today? Where would you like the future to flow into your present? Uh, Zechariah is alive in a day when Israel is now back in the land that they lost 70 plus years ago. They they left the land and now they're back. But things have changed in that period of time. They're not a sovereign state anymore. They're under a Persian king now. Uh, They don't have a king of their own. They have a governor. And Zechariah is taking in this environment and these new experiences, and he's looking forward to a day when Israel will once again have its own king, a king in the line of David. And the the vision that he receives about the kind of king who's coming and the kind of kingdom that's coming 
It subverts every popular conception of what kingly authority looks like. It undermines it and undoes it. The king that he sees is a lowly king, is a humble king, is a king who doesn't ride a war horse but rides a donkey, who's not a, 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 a warrior who fights God's enemies, but a peace bringer who dies uh, at the hands of those enemies to bring reconciliation and redemption. Who's not an oppressor, but a deliverer. Who's not a, an overlord, but a shepherd. Who's pierced by the ones he came to save. Now, Zechariah has no idea who he's speaking about. But we do, Right? We do, because it's, even when I read the verse, the reason why I said you'll probably recognize these words is because you don't know them from Zechariah. Where do you know them from? Matthew, Mark, Luke. Why? Because they're quoted there, because those are the verses that, that get brought up when Jesus rides into Jerusalem during the last week of his life. It's impossible to teach on Zechariah 9 without looking at the New Testament and Palm Sunday. And so that's, that's actually where I want to spend the rest of our time. Because we know that Jesus intentionally embodies the Scripture by choosing to ride into, into Jerusalem during Passover week, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And He purposely pointed to this text to say, this is what my authority looks like. I'm demonstrating how God's power works in the world. So the, the first thing we have to talk about is, is the fact that Jesus has authority. He, he embodies the authority of God. And we see this by the way that, um, that, that he gains his riding mount to get into Jerusalem, right? He, he gets a donkey, but how does he get it? Or a donkey and a colt, depending on who you're... Uh, which, which story you're looking at. But he, he tells his disciples to look for a donkey. And if you've ever read the story, you know Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, hey, go and find a donkey and then ask the owner if it's okay for me to borrow that donkey and then pay them if they don't go along with the plan. Right? That's not in my Bible. I don't know if it's in yours. That's not the way Jesus approaches the situation. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, get the donkey, and if anyone asks you what's up, you tell them that the Lord has need of it. <laughs> He's not asking. He's demanding. He's telling, this is how it's going to go. The reason the owner wouldn't have objected to this display of authority isn't because Jesus is omnipotent and he can somehow like zap people with God thoughts. Like That's how we often think of Jesus working. He just like zaps people like with God thoughts, like, like a Jedi mind trick. Like, this is, this is the donkey I need. This is not the donkey you need, right? It's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't zap people with God thoughts. The reason that the owner of the donkey wouldn't have objected is because this, this Davidic, messianic king that everyone was talking about and everyone was waiting generations for, according to Zechariah, was foretold to come from the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and ride into the city on a donkey. 
And this is exactly what Jesus chooses to do. Jesus, is, Jesus understands the cultural narrative that is playing out in people's lives, and he knows how to enter into that narrative and then lead them to himself. That's what Jesus is doing. And so if, if you owned a donkey and you lived on the Mount of Olives, and someone says that the Lord needs this because he's riding into Jerusalem today, your response would not be, how much is he going to pay me? Your response would be, here you go, I'll see you there. Because the king has come. He's here. Whoever this person is, is saying, I'm the king that Zechariah 9 and 14 told you is coming. And I've come to bring my authoritative peace to this city. Friends, if you own that donkey, you would do anything that you could to give it away. It's unmistakable what Jesus is doing. He's asserting his royal authority. That he is the king, at least as great as David, who can exercise authority to gain what he needs to rule. He has authority, friends. Now, what does he do with that authority? That's the question. Right? Because we, we often think that, you know, we, we talk about God as being powerful, as being sovereign, as being in control. We don't have any problem speaking in God in, uh, of God in those terms. And if Jesus is God, then we think, well, of course he has authority. But what does he do with it? That's the question. The answer is he rides in on a donkey. Now, there's a lot, to, there's a lot that we can say about this donkey. We don't know its name. <laughs> we know where it came from. But, but there's a lot that we can say about what this means. But one of the things that it means that I don't often hear people talking about enough is that it's important to understand that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, yes, it's an announcement that he's a king. Yes, it's an announcement that he's like David. Yes, it's an announcement that in some ways that he's the son of God, that he's come to die for his people, that he's going to the cross, that he's going to rise again. All that is in play, and this doesn't take away from any of it. But what I don't hear people talking about is the fact that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a humble donkey, this is a prophetic action. This is a prophetic action. Now, we don't have much experience with prophetic action. It's not a, a, a communication currency that we're often familiar with. So we have to go back a little ways in history to find one. So one of the ones that, that seemed most congruent with me to this particular prophetic act uh, was during the civil rights era in the 1960s. Those of you who lived through that experience or you're familiar with history, you know that one of the defining actions of that season of American history was when Martin Luther King and many of his nonviolent Christian compatriots who were fighting for civil rights one of the things that they did to announce their dignity was to march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery in the capital, and they crossed over a bridge. Now, why was this a prophetic act? It was a prophetic, prophetic act because um, just before that, black people were trying to gain the opportunity to vote in the capital, and instead of being allowed to register to vote, they were beaten with clubs 
and had fire hoses turned on them and dogs sicked on their heels. And they were driven out of that city. And because of the kind of power that was at work in that place. And so um, Martin Luther King and his friends, they don't get together in a gang with torches and clubs to go take back the city. And they don't uh, shrink away from the city to, to, to be lost to history. What do they do? They march together in a nonviolent crowd back to the place where this demonic authority was on display. They organized a three-day march that ended by crossing the bridge into the very capital where they were oppressed. And that march was a statement to say, we have dignity and honor, and you, you can't treat us like subhumans anymore. We're here, and your violence against us will show the world how we're being treated. The world will not be able to ignore it. It was a civil, prophetic protest against abusive authority and power. Do you see, you see what I'm going for? So, and I, wanted, I want to suggest that in part, what Jesus is doing by choosing Zechariah 9 as his entrance music into the city of Jerusalem is that he is gaining the city's attention on himself by doing all the things that a messianic king would do. East gate, donkey, palm branches, and the like. And people recognize it immediately for what it is. And yet at the very same time, he's using that spotlight on him as a prophetic contrast to the authority structures that are dominating Jerusalem. He's showing what the, what the dominant authority looks like in this city by saying, I'm a new kind of king in your midst who's come to bring freedom and release and peace. He even in, I think it's in Luke's gospel, when he's entering the city, he's weeping over the city. And he's saying, oh, Jerusalem, if you only knew the things that would bring you peace. So think about the other players at work in the city that Jesus is confronting by his prophetic action. You have despots like Herod and Pilate. You have demagogues like Caiaphas and the religious elites. One commands the city through violence and oppression, and the other controls it by making scapegoats and using the religious system to divide people into good people and bad people in order to maintain power. And Jesus rides in as a prophet king who takes the spotlight on himself to reveal the abuse of these unjust leaders and to say there is a new day at hand. The good news that we proclaim is that in a world of demagogues and despots where authority is used over and against others to control and marginalize them and even oppress them, today we see that Jesus is our humble king. He uses authority to save and empower those without power. His authority is freedom. His kingdom is peace. Church, one day the whole world will flow with this kind of humble authority. Where would you like a deposit of it today? Where would you like it to flow in your life? So Jesus asserts his authority, but he also demonstrates what that authority is for. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are writing more or less in chronological order, 
record the fact that Jesus enters into the city and then the very next thing that Jesus does is what? Where does Jesus go after he gets off that donkey? He goes right to the center of power at the temple and he flips over tables. He gets off the donkey and he goes straight into the teeth of misuse and abusive authority. And he starts flipping tables. He marches to the temple to throw out the money changers who are oppressing the poor and marginalizing those who can't afford to be in God's presence because of the rules of the religious elites. And he's angry. And he's fiercely upset. He's beside himself with what's going on in that city. It brings him to tears. Why? Because because those who have authority in Jerusalem refuse to use it for the good of others. That's what authority is given for. I try to, you know, tell the my older kids all the time, like the reason you're bigger than your brother is so that you can use your strength to help him, not to break his arm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> not to get the first cookie and the last piece of candy. You have strength for the benefit of others, not, for the, not to, to lord it over them. That's the only imagination we have for what power is for. And that's the only vision that, that the leaders in Jerusalem have for the, the reasons why they have power and authority. And when Jesus calls them out on it, when he flips the tables as a, as a, as a way to say, like, you're misusing this authority that God has entrusted into your hands, when he disrupts their demagoguery, they feel so threatened that they immediately begin plotting his death. Jesus, by entering Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace with a new kind of power, threatens those in power because their power is based on command and control, coercion and compliance. Jesus' very presence in their city is costing them something that they're unwilling to relinquish. And rather than joining those without power in praise of Jesus and going, yes, look, he's come to show us how to how to really use our authority. And laying down that authority at his feet, they, they look to eliminate the threat. Friends, when, when Jesus becomes a threat to your way of life, you know you're on the wrong end. When the kind of life that he lives and invites you to seems like bad news, you're in a bad way. It means that your power, like that of the Pharisees, Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate, is based on earthly power. It's trending towards despotry and demagoguery. Friends, this is what worldly power does to us. It tricks us into thinking that it's a better way of life, only to leave us abusing those that we love. And we'll do anything that we can to protect our authority. I mean, worldly power makes murder look like a great idea. 
It makes marginalization look like the only way. It makes spinning the truth seem like the only way to gain something good. You see how it works? You see how it's not just a, 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 like those that have like the most power have the most problems, but it like lives in all of us? Like the, the fact that like my kids don't listen to me when I say it's time to get off a screen and my instinct is to power up and to dominate and rip and shame and guilt and, f- and, and, provi- and bring fear. It's the same worldly authority at work in my heart that was in, in Caiaphas and the religious elites and in Herod. Same thing. I need saving. I need salvation. Maybe you do too. And friends, the good news is that the authority of Jesus is not looking to marginalize, oppress, or control us. Jesus' authority sets you free from our addiction to worldly authority. His kingdom is a gift to deliver you out of that bondage. He is our Savior, not our demagogue or despot. Where would you like a deposit of that authority today? Where would you like the future to flow into the present? How do we respond to this as a community? Well, Zechariah says that a day is coming when the whole earth will run according to God's humble authority. Uh, He says at the very end of chapter 14 that God's name will be the only name. And that that doesn't just mean that God is going to wipe out his enemies. It means that God's way is going to have its way. God's kingdom is going to come in its its fullness. It's going to flow out from Jerusalem where Jesus was killed and was resurrected and where the the Spirit came down on a a group of his followers. And it's going to flow out from that experience to the ends of the earth. That's what Zechariah says. And so Jesus, is, Jesus has come, our King has come, and His kingdom is at hand, which means it's available to us today. Amen? That means that we can begin to operate according to that future authority now. We don't need to wait for the world to catch up to the kingdom of God. Right? We don't need to go into our workplace and go, well, I mean, everybody else operates according to coercion and control. I I mean, what chance do I have, you know? No, like, what kingdom is real, friends? What king is alive? What kingdom is passing away? We are people who believe in the return of Jesus. Am I right? Which means his, his kingdom is the real one, even if we can't see it, where we live and where we work and where we play. His king has is, is come to live in us and through us. And his invitation to us is to operate according to his new, humble authority. We don't have to wait for the world. In fact, the way the world is going to see a new kingdom at work is through you, as you live according to a new king. So we're invited, friends. We're invited by this king. We're invited to take up his humility and his peace 
and his salvation. We're invited to live it out in ways that are meaningful, not just, not just for us, but through us to other people. So that means um, a couple things. One is we have, to, we have to talk about leadership here as a community. I have to say one thing just because I, I, I do have authority here and, and I need your help. So I, I do want to say that the authority that I give as a pastor to our church is always, always to be empowering, redeeming, freedom-giving authority. Never oppressive, abusive, manipulative, or controlling. And I've already, like, I've already admitted, like, that's not easy for me because even when my kids challenge my authority, what comes out of me? Worldly power, you know? So it lives in me. But I want you to know that the authority that Christ has given me is an authority to lay down my life for others, for your freedom, for your redemption, for your empowerment. And my authority begins and ends there. And if it ever becomes something other than that, then that's when I've forfeited my Christ-given authority and I've taken hold of another kind. So my commitment to you isn't to be perfect. I can't promise that. My commitment to you is to be accountable to the kind of authority that Jesus entrusts to me. And I need your help. So if I don't display that kind of authority, I need you to tell me. Fair? Okay. Second, if you're in Christ, that means that you were invited to operate in Jesus' authority too. The reason why I've asked you to imagine an area of life where you have influence is because maybe that's the place where God is trying to spark an imagination for how to live differently. Maybe. And what we see out of the life of Jesus, he, he doesn't just want a bunch of people to like operate like robots or minions. He wants disciples who can bear his authority, that can be entrusted with his power. People like him. And Jesus' plan is that we would operate in his humble authority that brings life and peace to those that we lead. So I, I was thinking about this in terms of my own parenting. And, um, and the day when it got like super really bad where my kids were just on screens all day. And it, it, it got to the point where our oldest was told to go clean his room. I wasn't at home at the time, but he was told to go clean his room he went upstairs, and instead he was on a screen. And so he got busted. And uh, so we took away the, the screens as a consequence of that action because things were getting out of hand. And, and again, I, I was out at the time, but when I got home, it was clear that I had to go and talk to him. I was talking to Mandy about it. And, and friends, my, my impulse, even in that moment, is to go immediately into command and control to use fear, guilt, and shame to manipulate my kids into obedience. And so one of the things that Mandy told me at the, at the time was one of the things she said to Caleb was, like, when you're on a screen, like, we miss you. We miss out on you. You know what my first thought was? Like, oh, that's good. That's a great tactic right there. Because, like, immediately my mind goes, like, ooh, man, that's, that'll really, like, turn the screws of guilt, you know? I bet that'll work, you know? Here's the thing. She meant it. <laughs> it wasn't a tactic for her. She actually did miss him. 
And the more that I thought about it, the more I realized, like, yeah, that's right. It's, it's, not just that I, it's not just that him being on a screen is disrespectful to his parents when they want him to do stuff. Like, when our, when our kids are on screens too long, we are robbed of their presence in our family. We're robbed of the gift that they can give to our lives, right? Because they're not there. They're checked out. They're gone somewhere else. And so I, I was praying, like, just as I, I was, you know, had to have this conversation with them, like, how do, I, how do I teach my kids to understand the danger of technology in a way that isn't oppressive and controlling toward them? How do I operate in the authority, God, that you've given me in a way that doesn't use guilt or shame as a lever to better behavior? So we, we, we did end up taking screens away as a consequence. Not as a punishment, but to communicate that we miss his presence and that he's in incredibly valuable to our family, that his life is a gift to give away to others. And when he's on a screen, he can't give that gift away. And so I, I, I tried to reinforce that and communicate that to him. Like, you're created for relationship and your presence is, is a gift that blesses others. And your time and your, your attention is a, is a way that you give the gift of your life away to the people that love you. And we're trying to help you to do that. So that was earlier in the week. And then yesterday happened. It was a, a day without screens. And, um, and what I saw is a, a young man who, not perfectly, right? I mean, he, he had moments with his brothers and all kinds of issues throughout the day. But, like, I watched him, like, give his time and his attention away as a gift. I watched him, like, I left him at the yard sale for a little bit, and I came back, and he was, like, he was, like, helpful, right? <laughs> and there were, like, no complaining, and, like, we were cleaning up, and he's continuing to help, and Mandy had to go do some chores, and he went with her and helped, and, like, man, so I, I just wanted, like, last night, as we were doing bedtime, I was just, like, you were such a gift today to so many people. Like, look at what you were able to do when you, when you had the ability to give that attention away, you know? What a gift that is. Like, that's, that's God at work in you. Friends, I, I need to learn how to parent from Christ's authority. I need to learn how to parent in a way that brings peace and flourishing to my kids. Just realizing, like, how void of... Uh, vision I have for that for myself where do you need it where do you need to learn how to express your authority from Christ who is your savior your prince of peace the good news is that he's not a demagogue or a despot he doesn't lord it over you he doesn't control marginalize or oppress you so that you'll just conform to his ways but he wants to free you so that you can flourish, so that you can be empowered, so that you can bear his authority in the world and bring peace. Amen? Let's pray.